And welcome to this episode of G220 Radio. This is episode number 547. Calling it Lying Lips Will Be Punished. This is a verse that we will see here multiple times today, and we're going to be looking at and be in the book of Proverbs. Chapter 19, I'm going to be trying to get through verses 1 through 15. And so we should have some good fun, some excitement. We're going to talk about friends and wealth and family and kings. I mean, we're just going to, this is what we do every night when we talk about Proverbs. Because it comes up a lot. And think about wisdom and what it means in the Christian life. As you can tell on YouTube and those who will listen to this later, I'm just going to tell you now, Ricky is not here with me. He's with us tonight. He is not feeling good. He's been kind of plagued with a sickness, so pray for him. Pray for the Lord to heal him. Pray for his body to kind of defeat this. We are talking a little bit about it. He's, he said he just feels like as he gets older, he just can't fight sicknesses anymore. And we can thank Adam for that. Let's just put it out there. We can thank Adam for sinning and ruining our bodies. But we have a resurrection hope with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit when we are glorified in heaven. So we can thank God for that. And we can thank God that even knowing Adam's sin, he provides a body that can fight off sickness. So Ricky is not here with us again this week. And so when we consider here Proverbs 19, we're pushing along, we're in the second half of the book, we're in the second part of the book, where we have all these general Proverbs. And one thing I've tried to show, and we'll do it again tonight, is that while Proverbs, and we can look at them, and we can read them singularly, and we can get some good theology from them, good wisdom from them, there is, and something we should consider is that there is a structure here. They're kind of put together and they kind of weave in and out. And this is important because James takes on a similar structure in his book. Going from theme to theme and seeming to recycle and going back and talking about these themes in different ways, in different lights. And again, we will see in Proverbs 19, verses 1 through 15, this kind of repetitiveness, but to rethink, reconsider, and have wisdom. What is the Word telling us? This is God's Word to us. It is built upon an understanding of His character and His nature. We see this in the old covenant. And so we can look back and look at the moral law and the summation of it, and that we are to love God and to love our neighbors and understand that the Proverbs helped us to build out what does it mean to love God and to love neighbors? What does it mean to honor God and not to have idols, to honor our mothers and our fathers? to not commit murder or not to lie. And all of those, all 10 commandments, as I mentioned, a few of them 
all of them come to bear when we think about Proverbs. Because it is God's word. And God is the same and does not change. So when we think about Proverbs 19 and when we consider the book, I want us to, we're going to think about these in different as units to combine. And we're going to see kind of three units, and this is how we're going to classify them today. And the first unit is verses one through three. And we're going to see here, we're going to talk about wealth and how to kind of think about wealth, how to consider our own wealth. And verse 19 starts off by saying, better is a poor person who walks in his integrity than one who is crooked in speech and is a fool. Desire without knowledge is not good, and whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. So verse 1 here sets the tone. We see this two people. We see a person who is identified as poor, one who does not have wealth. And then you have just one. It's ambiguous. Now, this could very much mean the rich, that you have the poor and the rich. But that this idea of this ambiguous one could also include the poor. That it's not just the rich. That's why it's kind of ambiguous. But I think we can see here, and as we'll see here, that the emphasis of the one is on one who is wealthy. So the book of Proverbs describes that it is better to be poor and walk in integrity. What does it mean to walk in integrity? So this person doesn't have a lot of money and he's to walk in integrity. Well, we've seen throughout Proverbs and just to, to think about it is to walk in integrity is to walk in a lifestyle of what is doing right. We could say that one's life could be considered blameless. And that they they do what God has called them to do, to love God and to love their neighbor. And they walk in a way that demonstrates that. So walking in integrity is this blameless life. Now, this doesn't mean they're sinless. Let's not go there. But this is one who honors God. Even though he may sin, he seeks to be one who reconciles quickly. He is, in this sense, blameless in trusting in the promises of God, honoring God with their actions and all that they do. Whether he is around people or not, integrity is not just in front of people, but who you are behind the closed doors. You are one that people know as blameless. So it's better to be poor, have no money, and to walk in an integrity than to be the one who is crooked in speech. And is a fool. So this one here is quirking his speech. He doesn't speak truth. He is trying to deceive with his words, and this is what makes him to be a fool. So to be to walk in integrity means that you're not a fool, and to be a fool is one who 
does not walk in integrity. So we can work out through this. And we should also kind of realize that when the psalmist or the Proverbs or anyone talks about poor, that that's not necessarily a bad thing. Charles Bridges in his commentary starts his commentary on verse one and taught in, in this verse one, it starts off his commentary says, poverty is never a disgrace except when it is the fruit of ill conduct. But when adorned with godly integrity, it is most honorable. So to think about poverty, because we've we've said it, we'll see it in a little bit of what poverty does. It can poverty is never a disgrace, except for when, as we'll see later, you're softful. You have done something that the consequences is poverty. So here we see the poor is being exonerated as one who walks in integrity, and that's a good thing. It is better to be poor than to be rich when you walk in integrity. We can think about this with the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. And that Lazarus is outside the rich man's calling for help and looking and needing substance. And when he dies, because he walked in integrity, he is in Adam's bosom. He is with God in heaven, where the rich man is separated. He's not there. That is that is the the point in which we should see that, that it is better to be Lazarus and poor and be in integrity than to be the rich man and be one who is corrupted and fool. And so we can see here that even in our poorness, we can trust the Lord and walk in obedience. And that it's not a necessarily consequence God is the one who gives and takes away, and that includes the wealth. And so when we think about the poor and the integrity and the kind of rich and their crooked, we now get into verse 2. And we have this, this idea of desire and knowledge, and that there is that desire does not always equals knowledge. And if you do not have knowledge, it's a bad thing. To have lots of desire and to not know how to use it or to do with it is not a good thing. I think when I think of this verse, and this may be kind of taken out of context, but when we worship the Lord, there may be desires to worship the Lord, but if we do not have the knowledge in which God wants us to worship, especially in the elevation of the preaching of the word and the right administration of the sacraments, that it's a bad thing. It's wrong. And so when we think about desire and knowledge, and in this point, we're thinking about it kind of in the headspace. 
We have desires to do something, and we don't have the knowledge. And in this sense, too, this knowledge is, I'll argue here in just a second, kind of connect it, is not just any knowledge, but a moral knowledge. And then what I think this verse is saying, and we'll flesh it out here in the second part of the verse, is that this desire, in this case, a desire for riches, without the knowledge and how to live in God's world in a moral sense is not good, but the reflection of it, the actual of doing of it in the second part of the verse is even worse. So whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. This idea to make haste in Proverbs is connected with money. It's connected with going through and trying to get money as fast as you can in crooked ways. You can think Proverbs 21.5, the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. They're trying to go out quick, get money, but it they lose it. Verse 20 or chapter 28, verse 20, a faithful man will abound with blessing. Whoever hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. This idea of hasting comes with this idea of making money wrongly, sinfully. Maybe at the abuse of the poor. They're not consideration. They are the one whose ways, their speech is corrupted. They're deceiving and conniving. So the rich in verse one who are corrupt are have a desire for money. They do not have the knowledge and the wisdom to live in God's world and to do what is right. And so they go, they make haste without considering the cost to get the money their heart desires. Remember, it's the love of money that is the root of all evil. And that is to what we should consider, that the, that the evilness of pursuing money, and this continues on even in verse 3 as we kind of hit the climax of it. We have now seen what happens when one is crooked and what it means that one is crooked, but now we will see here what it, the kind of the heart and the foolishness of the person. Verse three says, when a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. So he is pursuing the rich. He is making haste and he misses his way. He doesn't get it. He goes to ruin. So what happens when this rich man who desires money does not get what he wants and is instead ruined? Well, he hates God. He hates God for the consequences of his sin. Because his heart is so self-centered on what his desire, his love for money, that when all of his sinfulness comes upon him in this earth, if it comes upon him on this earth, he will hate God because God got in his way. 
and to think about what this calls us to be. It is not wrong to be rich. Riches have their issues. We'll see even more about it later. But the desire, the love of money will bring one to ruin. And in serving money, they will hate God and they will curse God. Bruce Walkie, in his commentary on this verse, says, They too shed a light on each other, these two ideas. The intractable, arrogant fool elevates himself as the ruler of the universe and rages against its moral governor for turning his sinful ways, which he hoped would continue forever on its head. He desired to go and to get the money and to be rich, and he does all these sins, and then when the consequences come to bear, he hates God. We see this in Ephesians, or not Ephesians, Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And here he's, Ecclesiastes talking about Solomon, talking about wisdom and folly. And at the end of the chapter, he says, See this alone, I found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. We, we go out, we want, we've coveted something that is not God. We've replaced God with our own idol that we've made. And we try to scheme. That's what he's talking about. That God made man upright. God made God, man was in, with integrity. They were blameless. But since the fall of man, they have sought out many schemes. Again, let's look at staying in the wisdom literature, Psalm 107. We will see, again, this play out in how the psalmist thinks about these issues, starting in verse 4. Some wandered in the desert and the desert wasted, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainteth within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by the straight way till they reach a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Verse 10. Some sat in darkness in the shadows of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they have rebelled against the words of God and spurned the high counsel of the Most High. So God comes to those who call for him. And he leads them by straight way. He leads them in integrity. He is one who goes and delivers them until they reach the city, and we can kind of think of this weary life as we walk towards the celestial city. And God satisfies their souls. But the wicked, the ones who sit in darkness, they don't want God. They've rebelled against the words of God. And then they curse him for the consequences 
they have. And so we see in these first three verses this idea of what it means and kind of the troubles when we seek after riches and God tries to stop us. And the heart that is set against God, that is why it is better to walk in integrity and have no money. Because our hearts are so easily turned towards the love of money because of what it brings. And that leads us into verses 4 through 7. And to think about now even more in-depth about wealth and additional problems that it brings. So we've kind of looked at the love of money. Now we move to wealth kind of in and of itself. And the Solomon writes, wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friends. A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will not escape. Many seek the favor of a generous, man, a generous man, and everyone is a friend to a man who gives gifts. All the poor man's brothers hate him. How much more does his friends go far from him? He pursues them with their words, but does not have them. And so we see, as we move into this wealth, what wealth brings. Wealth brings friends. When you have money, people come to you. Now, let's kind of define some terms here. This idea of friends would probably what we would more consider acquaintances. The word, the Hebrew word here, um, is never used in context of a covenant community. It's not like close friends. You know them, they know you. You might hang out a couple times, but you're not telling them your deepest, darkest secrets. You may catch up a little bit and that's it. So the friends here is, is acquaintances. And so the, the, the wealthy man, the rich man, gains a lot of acquaintances, a lot of friends. They want to be close. And well, why would they want to get close? Well, because they want to benefit from the wealthy man. They think that being close to someone of money is that maybe they'll receive some benefits. And how true is this? You listen to people who have won the lottery, millions of dollars with the lottery, and how they get people that they once knew or may have met asking for help, asking for money, and receiving letters from people to see if they can have some of the money the person just won. I was reading an article recently of a couple in Nebraska who won in light of the, I think, mega millions being over a billion dollars and in light of that. And they talked about how still to this day, they receive letters asking for money because they won the lottery, because they became very wealthy. And so the proverb bears out what is true, that wealthy people gain friends. People come to them. Now, these aren't 
friends that are closer than brothers. These are just people they know, people that want to be around them. And so the second part of this verse, when we talk about the people from poor people separate them, is this idea that no one wants to be around the poor because they're, they can't benefit them. That's the opposite. So, again, I think we should consider that this isn't friends within the covenant community. We should still be seeing these as acquaintances, but that people are just not flocking to poor people to be friends with them. And when we think about why, it's because they may have to give up. They're not going to be receiving. They have to give. It's not a tendency. Or about us, self-protecting us. And so when we think about what it means about poverty and wealth is we need to consider what it means. To consider kind of closely who our friends are. What these kind of are these people here just to kind of reap the benefits of having someone they know that is wealthy? <clears throat> and this continues on with verse 5 with a very stark warning. A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will not escape. And this may seem out of place. We're talking about wealth. Verse 6 talks about the favor of a generous man. Why, why does Solomon place this verse here? Well, it's to check our desires. A false witness will not go unpunished. When people lie, when people bear false witness they will receive punishment. We know in Revelation that no lying lips will be, that all lying lips will have their place in the lake of fire. Let's consider some catechism questions, the boys and girls catechism questions. Does God know all things? Yes. Nothing can be hidden from God. So we may consider and think about lying lips, and we may get, a, get away with it in this time, but God knows. God knows all things. God is everywhere. But we can't see God. Let's even consider the Baptist Catechism question number 61. What is the reason annexed to the third commandment? The third commandment is talking about do not take the Lord's name in vain. So what is the reason connected to it? Why? What's, what's the point of this commandment? The answer is, the reason annexed to the third commandment is that whoever the breaker of this commandment may escape punishment from men, yet the Lord our God will not suffer them to escape his righteous judgment. God will punish those who take his name in vain, and Proverbs is telling us God will punish those who have lying lips. God knows. The... Verses connected with the catechism question is 1 Samuel chapter 2 and 3, dealing like Eli and his sons. His sons never received earthly punishment for, for taking the Lord's name in vain by not upholding the work of the temple. They were using it for their own game. They, were, they did not care about right worship of the tabernacle. 
And because Eli does not take care of it, does not punish them, they escape human punishment, so God punishes them. In chapter 3, verse 13, God tells them that through the prophet Samuel. Again, Deuteronomy 28, 58, and 59 explains the same thing. That they, the Jewish, that the Israelite people will be punished when they break God's command. God will know. God knows the heart of the worshiper. God will know when you sin. And God, when you sin, you don't reflect God, who you are to. God is truth. God cannot lie. We talk about God can't do anything. Well, God can't lie. God always tells the truth. He cannot lie. He will not lie. And so lying lips is anti-God because it doesn't reflect God's nature. And he takes that seriously. Obviously, it's in the moral law. It's the ninth commandment. You should not bear false witness. Do not use words to tear down your neighbor and to destroy their witness. God cares about truth. And so those who are making friends with the wealthy need to watch out. They need, they should not bear false witness. They should not be lying because God will judge them. So verse six, we move back to the wealthy. Many seek favor of a generous man, and whoever is a friend to a man get to who gives gifts. Again, if we notice people are generous with, with their money, we will go to them. We will try to reap the generosity of them. Now, we should understand that this can go either way. That we can try to come to the rich person, to to become to the generous person under kind of the pretense of bribery, to try to get into their goods gracious so that if something were to happen, they would help us out. We maybe not get the judgment we deserve. Oh, I got this kind of rich friend who can help me out. But we, Several weeks ago or months ago, we talked about Proverbs 13, 27, about the blessing of giving to the poor. That for the rich to give to the poor, it's a blessing. It is God using the rich to take care of the poor. That's a good thing. It's not so it's not wrong to be rich. We should see in that how the rich is to use their money, but this verse challenges us. That when we flock to someone who we perceive to be more wealthy, what is our intentions? What are our pretense in going? And to consider, and we may lie about it, verse 5, in our minds on why we are going. But in the end, God knows the real reason. It should cause us to fear. And verse 7 then ties all of this back up. All the poor man's brothers hate him, despise him. They leave him. How much more does his friends go far from him? 
I think that this could be an idea that this poor man was once rich and had all these friends. Now he is poor for whatever reason. We're not told, but now they are gone. His friends are leaving him. They have no more benefit to be around him. His brothers leave him. His friends leave him. We get this idea that this poor man is now left alone. And it's even further indicated that he pursues them with words. He's crying out for help. He needs them now. He needs them to give up of themselves and to be generous in their giving. And what happens? It doesn't have them. They don't hear him. They don't respond. They don't care. They have left him. We need to consider the benefits and the pitfalls of being wealthy. That when push comes to shove and for whatever reason, one becomes not wealthy anymore, or may even perceive not wealthy, these acquaintances will leave. You'll be all alone, and you can cry for help and try to get help, but they won't be there. But what's going to sustain you when you're there? Well, we read it in Psalm 107. It's the Lord. And if you're a Christian, hopefully the covenant people that is around you to help you, to build you up. Because I mentioned earlier, the idea brings many that wealth brings many friends is not that they're actual friends. They're not. They're acquaintances. They're people who are trying to benefit from your wealth. And when they're gone, when they've left you, the question is, where is your hope? Who's going to sustain you? And it's the Lord. And if you're a Christian, the Lord has given you people to sustain you. Those are what is there. And so verses 4 through 7 help us to think about wealth rightly. That we are to be, though we may be wealthy, to recognize the danger of people trying to come and be friends. But probably more so us who may be considered poor as we maybe try to reach out to the wealthy to understand and to consider why we're doing it. And that the Lord knows. The Lord knows our heart. And so we need to consider why. Be ones who are thinking through these things to remember that it's better to be blameless and poor than it is to be rich and crooked. Our final section in Proverbs 19 moves kind of away from wealth and into kind of social life, particularly with kind of the king and with our family. And what does it mean to live with wisdom 
or as verse 8 will say, sense. In these two spheres, they're connected. So verse 8 starts, whoever gets sense loves his soul. He who keeps understanding will discover good. A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will, will perish. He's not fitting for a fool to live in luxury, much less for a slave to rule over princes. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. A king's wealth is like the gnawing of a the ro sorry, roaring of a lion, and his favor is like the dew on the grass. A foolish son is ruined to his father, and a wife quarreling and it is a continual dripping of rain. A house and wealth are inherited from the father, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. Slothfulness casts into a deep sleep, and the idle person will suffer hungry. So verse 8 is the theme of these two sections. So you have verse 8, and then 9 through 12, and 13 through 15. And it, so to understand these, we need to first kind of evaluate what verse 8 is saying. And the idea is whoever gets sense is one who is learning to live in God's world. He is one who is who has wisdom and knowledge. He knows kind of God's will, what God wants his people to act like. So whoever gets sense, whoever seeks that, whoever understands the correction given to him, so whoever gets sense loves his soul. And this idea to love his soul is an idea of one that promotes life. That to have sense means to kind of have life. That when we get sense, we love our soul because it prolongs our life. We don't do foolish things. We don't receive the punishment of doing foolish things. This idea keeps going for when he says, he who keeps understanding will discover good. So in our growth and sense and understanding, our lives are prolonged and we find good. We find favor. We, in one sense, we can say that our life, we get abundance in life. Not necessarily in riches, as the prosperity gospel would say, but that we have life and we have it abundantly. That we have flourishing. That our lives are better. Our lives, we're happier. We ride the waves of ills with the calming sense of the Lord. So he who loves sense and wisdom prolongs his life. He loves his life. He discovers good. He discovers flourishing. And so then verse 9, we get a repeat of verse 5. A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lives will perish. We're reminded again of the importance of walking in integrity and walking in truth. And in verse 10, we see it's not fitting for a fool to live in luxury, much less for a slave to rule over princes. So this is a turning over. It is not fitting for a fool 
one who despises God, one who rejects teaching, to live in luxury, and that is kind of in flourishing, that their life is going well. So it's the one who has sensed that loves his soul, and there's a flourishing there. So it's not fitting for a fool to have the same flourishing. It's not fitting that a fool can live his life of foolishness apart from God's law, living in sin, loving sin, and have a flourishing life. That doesn't make sense. Much, much less kind of a greater, a, a lesser to greater for a slave to rule over princes. Like you would not expect one who is lowly to have such great honor to kind of rule over the people. No, that's what a prince does. So it's not fitting for a fool to have flourishing, just like it's not fitting for a slave to rule a land and to rule over the princess. So verse 11 brings us back around in the good sense, that good sense makes one slow to anger. And it is his glory to overlook an offense. So when we think about good sense and what it means to prolong our lives, we also see that a good sense is slow to anger. This is a reflection of who God is. God is slow to anger. And we see this in our salvation. God did not kill the Isra the Israelites when they built the golden calf. That's right after that event is where God or Moses intercedes for the people because God's going to destroy them. And God passes by him and Moses gets to see his goodness pass on his backside. And the word said there is that he is, God is slow to anger. So to flourish, to have good sense is to be slow to anger, to not be flippant, to be impatient. There's so this idea of being patient. A fool we know isn't patient. So the good sense is slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook offenses. Now, even when we consider when God says that he is slow to anger, we also know that he will punish the wicked. That though he is slow to anger and in steadfast love, he will punish the wicked. And it, it is his glory that he over that he overlooks, that he is slow to anger, that he overlooks offense, because it will be in his time in which he will bring the Savior to save his people from their sins. So verse 11 is us seeing who God is as one who is slow to anger and realizing that we're called to do the same. And when we act in that way, we receive the favor and the glory that comes with overlooking offense, which is just a microcosm of the glory in which God receives for saving sinners. 
And it is the glory of the person to overlook an offense. Who would be overlooking offense? Will it be the king. Verse 12, a king's wrath is like a gnawing of a lion. So we have this idea of an angry lion, that the king's wrath is one that is destructive, that it destroys. And in one sense, this would be a destruction of the foolish one, the one who deserves the wrath. His life is ruined, is brought to a ruin. He is can be thrown in jail. He is he's receiving the punishment of his sin. But the king's favor is like dew on the grass. It's nurturing. It builds up. And how we think about the king as in one sense representing God, who is the ultimate king, but how we deal with the king. Are we ones who come with a fault with, uh, with a false witness to the king? Well, you expect his wrath. You should expect his wrath, that you will come to ruin. You will be punished. And if the king, the earthly king, doesn't punish you, punish you, how much more would the, the heavenly king punish you? But also... In this idea of a good sense is that a king showing favor, overlooking offense, one who is a king who is slow to anger, restores, builds up. He needs to punish the wicked, but there's times in which grace and mercy might need to be extended. And in the building up, of the people, his favor is shown upon them and builds them up. So the one who has good sense understands having favor before the king and that his life is prolonged. He is allowed to flourish and to grow. The foolish one doesn't deserve to live in that life. He deserves the wrath of the king, and he will suffer the ruin. So that's how verse 8 is connected through 9 through 12 now, and kind of in the kingship and within government. Now we go, we look at what does it mean to have sense and to love his soul when it comes into relation with the family. Verse 13, a foolish son is ruined is ruined to his father, and a wife's quarreling is a continual dripping of rain. So to look at the first part of the verse, a foolish son is ruined to his father. As much as we don't like it, our children are a reflection of us. How many times we see people, and they do something dumb, let's say what it is, and we acknowledge about how, well, their parents just didn't raise them up right. This is not, we'll kind of even kind of shift to blame a little bit and how this works. 
we need to, as children of fathers, we need to consider our action. A foolish son ruins his father. And this comes important when we think about church officers. One of the requirements to be a pastor, to be a bishop, to be an overseer, all one position of a local church, is that their children must be well-behaved. And there is a sense in which a foolish son, who in this case isn't obeying, honoring their mother and their father, and in one sense not honoring the authorities that they are placed to, whether they're superior, inferiors, or equals, that a, a foolish son ruins the reputation of his father. There is destruction there. This foolish son does not have sense. He does not love his soul, and it brings about a ruin. And the second part of the verse, a wise quarreling is a continual dripping of rain. And commentators have noted that we tend to think about this as wife's nagging and this kind of like continual like drip on our head. That's probably not an accurate understanding of this verse. For first off, the idea of quarreling is not just nagging. It may be associated with it, but this is a wife who's causing trouble, causing division. This isn't just a wife nagging her husband to do something. This is much worse. She, in, in one sense, is does not have good sense. And she is causing division. She is ruining relationships. And to compare him as a continual dripping of rain, we can compare him to a leaking house. And the destruction a leak has when the roof is leaking. It has it. Um, I'm having to deal with this now in my own life. An actual, not my wife quarreling and causing division. All That is not happening right now. My wife is, as we'll see here in a little bit, is a prudent wife, is from the Lord. That's what she is. But we're dealing with a leaky roof. And I know there's going to be stuff I'll have to fix because of it. Some of it is my own slothfulness. That's we'll get to that a little bit later. But there roofs, leaky roofs cause damage, and sometimes damage you cannot see. It's hidden, it's behind. But there's still this this damage, and that's what a quarreling wife does. A wife causes a division in the family, in society, it brings destruction. It's not flourishing. She has no good sense. And so this calls us to think about our relationships, how we interact with each other. What does it mean to be divisive in the, the destruction in which it brings apart? And destroying relationships and the networks in which God has given us to be provided from. Verse 14 brings us on the opposite side. 
house and wealth are inherited from fathers. So a father who has good sense and who loves his soul and he has worked hard, he has home, he has a house, he has wealth, and they're given to his sons. We see here a father who is working hard, but the sons are the benefits of the working of their father. They receive the benefits. The contrast is a prudent wife, a wife who's wise, who has good sense, who has understanding, who understands God's law, who walks in integrity, all the things we've been kind of talking about. A prudent wife is from the Lord. The Lord blesses men with prudent wives. We should be thankful for our wives. I should be thank more thankful for my wife. I'm sure Ricky would say the same. We can never be. I mean, thankfulness is one that can never be topped off. My wife is amazing, and what she does with the kids is amazing. She is a gift from God. I need to remember that. I need to think about that. Because she, in one sense, loves her soul in the flourishing of the family. It is the prudent wife with the husband who gives an inheritance to the children. And so husbands, you should be thankful for your prudent wives and, and understand that they come from the Lord. These are good things. In verse 15, you have slothfulness cast into a deep sleep, and an idle person will suffer hungry. Will, will suffer hunger. And so we see here the value of good work. What it means to have a good sense is to understand that work is good. A show topic I want to do and need to talk to Ricky about and how we're going to discuss it is to understand this idea of kind of this quiet quit mentality. And what does it mean? And is there something there that Christians should, we should agree with, but is there also some sins like slothfulness that are part of it? So slothfulness casts into a deep sleep. It causes us to not do anything, kind of mindlessly going through the day. And when we're not doing anything and we're idle, we'll suffer hunger. We won't have, in one sense, we can't provide, we cannot flourish. That slothfulness leads to poverty. So when we started this show and talking about blessed is the one who walks, the poor who walks in integrity and understanding that just because one is poor doesn't mean they have sinned against God. Here in this case, we can say that this poor person, the, the idle person who suffers hunger, who doesn't have a means to feed himself, 
who isn't flourishing, who lacks sense, is receiving the benefits or the consequences of their actions. The idle person will suffer hunger. I mean, Paul, in one sense, references this when he talks about if, if you do not work, you shall not eat. That work is good. God created man to tend and cultivate the world. That's man's job for God's glory as his image bearers to kind of rule and create like God rules and creates. Slothfulness is against God in that way. God is a God who works and enjoys the works and creates good things. And slothfulness destroys. It is not flourishing. And I think this even considers when we think about gaming as a profession. Is there, is that cultivating the world? We should understand that gaming is not inherently wrong. I don't think so. It can be a good enjoyment arrest in in a sense but we need to consider these things and all of that kind of feeds into then when we see slothfulness and that it doesn't love our souls to pick up the language in verse 8 that whoever has sense flourishes and slothfulness destroys We've seen this already, um, you know, in the first part of the book. A little sleep, a little folding of hands, and poverty will come upon you. Think in chapter 9. We, we need to consider what it means to work unto the Lord and to be one who goes out. And to kind of tie this all together is that this is what wisdom does. Wisdom allows us to be poor and walk in integrity and understanding that it's more important to walk in integrity than it is about the money. And then even to consider the relationships we have with other people. Why are we attractive to rich people? And will this ultimately lead to our flourishing or will we deceive the people we go after and receive the punishment of God? How we interact with our government brings about flourishing. Paul continually talks about how the government is to be ones that punish evil and honor good. We should be ones who seek the favor of the government that we may go well with our souls, that we may continue to practice our religion, practice our worship towards God without fear. And we should pray for our persecuted brothers to have the same, our persecuted brothers and sisters, and understanding that God's wrath 
the king's wrath will destroy. And how our family is also plays a part in the good sense and wisdom that it is worked out in those ways. And that a quarreling wife destroys family, destruction. But a prudent wife is a gift from the Lord and brings flourishing to the family. We should pray that our, as husbands, that our wives are prudent and would grow in sense, who will love to gain knowledge. And wives should pray that that's their own heart's desires too. And so Proverbs 19 <coughs> helps us to reflect, reflect on good things of God and how we are to interact with them, how we are to see them, and the, the wisdom in not going after the desires of our hearts without knowledge. Verse 2 helps us to understand all of this. Now we have the knowledge and understanding of what it means to just blindly go after our desires. And so that is our episode for today. That was Proverbs 19, 1 through 15. I want to thank you for this journey to think about these things, to reconsider these things, and to even be admonished to pray for our wives or our future wives and the gift that they are and to consider about how we deal with the money God has provided to us. We will be back next week with a new show at nine o'clock PM Eastern time. We do this every Tuesday night. You should just come and enjoy and to think about these things with us. I appreciate you listening to me and Ricky, we pray that you'll be better and we can have a more entertaining conversation because it's always fun to have more people on. Thanks for listening and God bless. <laughs>